Tonight we're going to return to Colossians 2 and verse 6 where we were last Wednesday. And we'll read all the way down through verse 12. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in Him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed, and overflowing with gratitude. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. For in Him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, and in Him you have been made complete, and He is the head over all rule and authority. And in Him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with Him through faith in the working of God who raised Him from the dead." One of the things that was interesting for Mark and I when we were in India was the architecture, not because the architecture was beautiful, but because it was odd. And we would walk uh, out on muddy roads to remote villages, and within the village there would be a very smooth, very nice concrete roads. And not only that, there would be very smooth and very nice concrete slabs on which the people could build their homes. But on top of these slabs, they would often build simple huts. They had a very nice concrete slab and a bamboo hut built on top. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in Him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed, and overflowing with gratitude. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. For in Him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, and in Him you have been made complete, and He is the head over all rule and authority. And in Him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with Him through faith in the working of God who raised Him from the dead. One of the things that was interesting for Mark and I when we were in India was the architecture, not because the architecture was beautiful, but because it was odd. We would walk uh, out on muddy roads to remote villages, and within the village there would be very smooth, very nice concrete roads, and not only that, there would be very smooth and very nice concrete slabs on which the people could build their homes, But on top of these slabs, they would often build simple huts. A very nice concrete slab and a bamboo hut built on top. It was was odd, but it reminded me of America, not the architecture in America, at least not the architecture of buildings, but the architecture of many of our lives. Because as I studied this week and as I thought back on those shacks, It made me think that there are many uh, genuine Christians in America, people whose lives are founded on the solid rock that is Jesus, but who are building up their day-to-day living like a bamboo shack. People who know that Jesus is their only hope in heaven, the only hope of heaven, they don't doubt that. And yet, they're building their 
earthly lives around worldly ideas and worldly methods and worldly philosophies, sometimes trying to use those philosophies for spiritual ends. They want to do what's right, but instead of listening to what God says, they listen to what everyone else says. People who would fight for the truth that Jesus is the only way to heaven, and yet they get their, for instance, parenting techniques from Dr. Phil instead of from Proverbs. People who would never doubt that Jesus is the only Savior, but they get their ideas about romance from primetime television rather than from Song of Solomon. Or people who are genuine Christians, but who get their financial strategy from motivational tapes rather than from Jesus, who taught more about money than almost anyone. It's amazing when you look around and you see how many genuine Christians listen more to the world than they do to the Bible. And all of us are a lot more saturated with worldly ideas than we think. Everything that comes at us all day, for the most part, is the world's philosophy. And we drink in a lot more than we think. So just sometime examine your decision-making processes and trace them back and say, why did I decide to do that? And oftentimes it will be because that's what we saw someone else do or that's what someone recommended rather than having an actual answer from the Bible. So you do that as a homework assignment on your own. So I think, jumping into this passage, that perhaps there are many Christians, maybe some in the room tonight, who are building on solid foundations, but who are building straw houses on top of the foundation. We're standing on Jesus, and we know that we're standing on Jesus, but all around us we've placed the world's ideas. And that's what Paul is trying to correct. One of the things he's trying to correct in verses 6 and 7. In verse 6, he's saying, you walk with Christ in the same way that you received Christ. We covered that last week extensively. We follow Christ by trusting in what He says and what He has done, just like we became Christians by trusting in what He said and what He's done. So that we said last week, we don't need to try really hard in our own efforts to become good Christians. And we may say this week, we don't need lots of answers from the world in order to become the people that God wants us to be. If we came, became Christians by following Christ, by trusting in Christ, then we can walk how God wants us to walk in the same way. And he uses this illustration that made me think of India. In verse 7, this building illustration being firmly rooted and then built up, established, being, laying a foundation and then being built up. And what he says in verse 7 is, we are founded by faith in Christ and we ought to build ourselves up. We ought to build our lives through faith in Christ. So we became Christians by faith, now we live as Christians by faith. But as we said last week, and as we're saying again tonight, there are many genuine Christians who aren't doing that. There are many Christians who think that they became Christians by faith and now they've got to live as Christians by works. And there are a whole other set of Christians who became Christians by faith, but they live their lives according to the world's philosophies and the world's way of thinking rather than according to Christ. And as we said last week, this was our key sentence last week about walking by faith, that there are certain specific truths about Jesus that when we believe them will unlock for us new spiritual passions and abilities and taste buds so that the way we live is changed. We don't need ideas from outside. We don't need hard work from the inside. What we need to do is understand Jesus and the way we live will change and it will be successful in God's eyes. 
Simply trying harder won't do, imbibing the world's philosophies won't do either. So Paul's message then in verses 8 and following, if we might summarize it, is something like this. Get Jesus right. That's his main message. Understand Jesus. Get Jesus right. Because it is Jesus alone who will get you right. You want to be right, you want to live right, you want to be right with God, then you need to get Jesus right. Because it is Jesus alone who can get you right. So that's what we're going to talk about. Those two pieces tonight. Getting Jesus right, understanding Jesus correctly in verses 8 and 9, and then we'll talk about one way that Jesus sets us right in verses 10 through 12. So, first, we need to make sure we get Jesus right. Right, that we are correct about Jesus. And in verses 8 and 9, he explains what he means. See to it that no one takes you captive. Let's just stop there for a moment. See to it that no one takes you captive. And then he lists ways that we might be taken captive. And then he concludes it with rather than according to Christ. In other words, see to it that no one leads you in a direction that is not the direction of Jesus. See to it that no one convinces you to follow a philosophy that's not the philosophy of Jesus. Don't be carried away by the way that the world thinks. But get Jesus Right. That's one of the world's biggest problems is that the world doesn't get Jesus right. And so it thinks all kinds of wacky things about everything you can think of, starting with the fact that it doesn't get Jesus right. In the remainder of verse 8, as I said, he gives some examples of how the world thinks and how we might be carried away. So let's just look at each of those briefly. First, he says, see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception. The way that's structured there in the Greek uh, lets us know that he means that philosophy and empty deception are two ways to say the same thing. So we lump them together. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception. And by philosophy and empty deception, Paul is referring to treating Jesus or religion, treating truth, as a topic of interesting discussion or noble speculation, but unconnected to everyday living and unconnected to everyday morality. He says, beware of speaking about and thinking about Jesus as an interesting conversation piece, someone who is neat to think about and talk about because it's kind of higher and outside of our normal everyday living, and to have those kind of conversations and then to leave them as conversations and go back to everyday living. Be careful of that, he says. And maybe some of you have been in conversations like that. Maybe before you were a Christian. Maybe some of you since you were a Christian. You talk to people, well, you know, I think Jesus is this. And, and you join in and you give your two cents worth. And it's all great. And you can think what you think. And I can think what I think. And it's wonderful. And now let's go have a beer. That's the way a lot of people treat Jesus. He's a wonderful conversation piece. And now let's go live however we want. Don't think that way, Paul is saying. This particularly shows itself in our culture in a a group of people uh, who like to call themselves spiritual, but who will be quick to tell you, I don't want to have anything to do with organized religion or with historical, the historical Jesus. They do surveys all the time of people in North America. And scads of people in North America call themselves spiritual but won't call themselves 
affiliated with uh, organized religion. Those two things, they say, don't go together. You can't be affiliated with an organized church and be spiritual. And you certainly, if you're spiritual, don't have to be connected to the historical Jesus. And so you have this group of people who wants to somehow have these noble discussions, but doesn't want it to change the way they live. That's why they don't want organized church, and that's why they don't want the historical Jesus. Because if you have an organized church that will hold you accountable, and if you have a historical Jesus who said some really hard things about sin, then all of a sudden you have to start holding yourself accountable. And sinners want to avoid that at all costs. And so they class themselves as spiritual. They have great conversations and then they live however they want. He says, don't do that. Don't be taken captive by philosophy, by high conversation and by empty deception. Secondly, he says, see to it that no one takes you captive according to the tradition of men. Here I think Paul is most likely referring to first century Judaism. This is what he was constantly having to battle against. People who were tempted to go back to the rituals and the legalism of first century Judaism. There's something attractive about long gowns. There's something attractive about Pharisees praying wonderful prayers in public to certain people. There's something attractive about feeling like you've dotted every I and crossed every T and then when God sees you at the judgment day, He's going to look at you and go, Wow! There's something attractive about that for people. And he says, don't fall for that. This religion that's always looking down its nose, patting itself on the back and looking down its nose and saying, look at all these people. Don't do that either. Don't follow the traditions of men. Now, there are a lot of 21st century Christians, a lot of 21st century so-called Christians anyway. There are a lot of 21st century Baptists who live just like the Pharisees. Just like the Pharisees. When you talk to them about their spiritual life, they say things like this. I've never been in trouble like he has. They say, I've never fornicated. I can't believe people live like that. I've never had a drink. I know how to behave in church. Look at these people coming into our church behaving this way. I know the lingo is what they're thinking. Here's my favorite. Things were a lot better in my day. That's the way the Pharisees talked. And that's the way modern day Pharisees talk. It's not reliance on Christ that says those kinds of things. It is patent Phariseeism that says, God, I thank you that I am not like these rabble that are coming to our church. I thank you that I fast twice a week, God. I thank you that I know all the prayers and I do all the right things. That is not the spirit of Jesus. See to it that no one takes you captive with the traditions, the legalisms of men. And he says, thirdly, see to it that no one takes you captive according to the elementary principles of the world. Now, there's some debate about what this word that's translated elementary principles means. What it seems like to me that it means uh, is kind of an echo of what he just said. I believe elementary principles here is again referring to man-made rules for how we have to live this way and that and obey this rule and that. And the reason I think that is because in verse 20 he uses the same word when he says, if you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why as if you were living in the world do you submit yourself to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch? 
In other words, the elementary things are these decrees. You can't eat that. You can't drink that. You can't go there. You can't participate in that. And that's what their religion was summed up by. Just a bunch of negatives. So I think he's saying the same thing again here, but I take extra time on it and I repeat it because this is where we began, isn't it? We began by pointing out how readily most of us get our philosophy, our way of thinking about life from men. We do that readily. We read the newspaper, we see what it says, and we just assume that the philosophy that they're writing from is true. We listen to the news and we just assume that the things they're telling us are true and told to us from the right angle. Both secular commentators and religious commentators, we listen to as though they were God sometimes. We would never say that. But someone comes on, famous religious person, and he says something and we just take it for God's Word rather than looking at God's Word. And so, Paul is saying to us, Don't follow the rules of men. Don't follow the ways of men rather than following Christ. If the ways of men are the ways of Christ, then wonderful. Follow the ways of Christ and you'll be with those people who follow them. But don't just listen to the world or you'll be swept away. You'll be carried away by foolishness. And lots of people this weekend are going to do just that when they go to the movie theaters. They're going to assume that some man writing in the 21st century based on da Vinci who lived centuries after the fact actually has some information that nobody knew about until now. And they'll be carried away because they're listening to men instead of listening to God. Now, the problem with us then in listening to men, the problem with that is not just that men may be wrong. The problem is when we listen so readily to men We're treating Jesus as though He were irrelevant. Jesus has something to say about everything that you're going to encounter tomorrow. Everything. And everything that you're going to encounter for the next 50 years, He has something to say about. And when we listen to what everyone else says all the time, we're saying to Jesus, I know you've you've said a lot of things and I've got your Bible at home on my bedside table, but right now I'd rather listen to what Oprah thinks about this. That's madness. And we all realize that it is. And we need to catch ourselves doing it. And Paul says, we think Jesus is irrelevant. Nothing could be further from the truth. For in Him, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. What could be more relevant than God Himself coming and living in the flesh on the earth and speaking to us? Nothing. Nothing could be so modern and so cool and so cutting edge that it would be more important than what God made flesh has to say. And here Paul is also correcting in verse 9 the two classic errors about Jesus that people were making in his day and that people were making in our day. The first error that people made in his day and that a lot of people make in our day, including uh, people who will see the Da Vinci Code this weekend, is the error of believing Jesus was just a man. He was a good teacher. You've all heard that before. Maybe some of you used to think that yourselves. But Paul says all the fullness of deity, all the fullness of the Godhead, all the fullness of Godness dwells in Him. He's not just a man. That's clear. So His philosophy of life is not just one option among many. It's the philosophy. It's the only one we should really be paying attention to. 
And the second error that he's correcting is also popular still in our day, and that is to say something like this. Well, we can't really tell if there really was a historical Jesus. Or if there was, we certainly can't know anything about him. So what's really important is not if there was or wasn't a historical Jesus, but the spirit that we get from the stories that we read, and they really help us to become better people. Well, that's foolishness as well. You don't read the story of Snow White and think to yourself, this is earth-changing. We can really learn a whole philosophy of life from this. You don't read Aesop's fables and say, this is going to create a revolution. The only way something creates a revolution is if it's true. And it's not just that we can't tell if there really was or wasn't a Jesus. Paul says in Him, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Jesus was both God and He was a real live man who walked on the earth and who's still alive. And if that's true, if He was a real person, He can't simply be philosophized about. He can't simply be talked about in religious circles, but He must be obeyed. His claims and his life are as real as this lectern that I'm standing in front of. And he must be reckoned with. Strikingly, many of us go through phases in our lives where we do just what we just described people doing. We make the same mistakes. We philosophize about Jesus. We talk about Jesus. We have a great time discussing him on Wednesday night. And then we go out and we live the way we want. All of us are guilty of that. All of us are guilty of sometimes listening to the talk shows or reading the newspaper more than we read our Bible. So what Paul is saying here in verses 8 and 9 is understand the historical Jesus. Get Jesus right. Make sure you understand and you know Jesus. And then in the three verses that follow, he explains that one reason we must get Jesus right is because it is Jesus who will get us right. Jesus who will set us right. One of the reasons it's so important that we understand Jesus clearly is because philosophical discussions and religious activities and man-made rules and regimens cannot give us the power to say no to sin. Never have and never will. Knowing a lot of things about church, being a lot in church, Knowing what's right and wrong will not help you do what's right. Everyone in this world knows that it's wrong to take another man's wife. Everyone. And yet they do it all the time. That's why we need to know the truth about Jesus. That's the only thing, the truth, that can set us free from our sin. And Paul now explains in verses 10 through 12 how that happens. In Him... You have been made complete. And He is the head over all rule and authority. And in Him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with Him through faith in the working of God who raised Him from the dead. That's a mouthful. We're going we're to take it apart piece by piece. But what we have here are some specific truths about Jesus that if we believe them, will unlock for us new passions and taste buds and abilities so that we will be able to say no to sin. If you really believe verses 10, 11, and 12, you will be able to say no to sin. 
beginning with this summary statement. In Him you have been made complete. The actual word there is in Him you have been made full. So He is full of God's deity and He's made you full. That's what He's saying. He is completely God and He will make you complete, has made you complete if you are in Him. And then He goes on to explain three ways that Jesus has made us complete. And this is where the rubber meets the road tonight. These are the things that you're going to have to remember and preach to yourself. Three ways that Jesus has set you free from the power of sin. Three reasons you do not have to go on sinning. Number one, I do not have to go on sinning because Jesus has defeated the devil and his angels. Read verse 10, the first half of the verse, or the second half of the verse. He is the head over all rule and authority. And the rule and authority there, if you read down to verse 15, is talking about the devil and his angels, the, the powers of the air, as Paul calls them in another place. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. Jesus has triumphed over the rulers and authorities of this world, namely the devil and his angels. So you may rightly say to yourself, if you're in Christ, the devil does not have the power to make me keep on sinning. The devil made me do it won't work anymore if I'm in Christ because Jesus has defeated the devil for me. Greater is he, 1 John 4, 4, greater is he that is in me than he that's in the world. Jesus is more powerful than Satan and he has defeated Satan through his cross So when you are tempted directly by Satan and his angels, and some of you will be in very clear and graphic ways, others more subtly, you must appropriate this truth. You must remember Colossians 10b. Jesus is the head over all rule and authority. Therefore, I don't have to listen and I don't have to sin. You've got to preach to yourself. And you've got to believe that the devil and the demonic world have no power over a child of God. It might be good to memorize Colossians 3.10 or 1 John 4.4. So what he's saying here, first of all, concerning the devil and his angels is that we overcome sin in the same way that we were forgiven of sin. Namely, by faith in specific truths about Jesus. This specific truth is that he has defeated the devil on our behalf so that we don't have to sin anymore. That's number one. Number two, I do not have to go on sinning because Jesus has cut off my flesh or my sin nature. Verse 11, In Him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. I use the word cut off intentionally there. Because that's exactly what Paul is talking about by using this metaphor of circumcision. He's describing what happened to us when we became Christians. And what happened to us is that our sin nature was cut off just like an eight-day-old baby's foreskin was cut off from him in the Old Testament system. The Old Testament symbol of circumcision is a metaphor for what God does, not by human hands, but what God does in the human heart for those who believe. He circumcises our hearts. He cuts off the flesh, the sin nature from our hearts. And this is big because as you should all know, we are much more likely to be carried away by our own sin nature than we are by the devil. 
You will listen to yourself more than you'll listen to anyone else in the world because you love yourself as a sinner more than you love anyone else in the world. And therefore, we are very thankful that Jesus has done surgery in our hearts to silence our sin nature. When Jesus was cut off, when Jesus was killed, or as Paul uh, uses this metaphor again at the end of verse 11, when Jesus was circumcised, when he was cut off and killed, not only did the guilt of our sin get thrown away, but so did the power of sin. It was cut off from us. Now, the sin nature has, through the death of Jesus, been dealt a mortal blow. But the sin nature, as we all know from experience, dies hard and it dies slow. But what Paul is saying here is that the decisive blow has been struck. If you're in Christ, your sin nature is not going to gain strength. It's not going to come back to life and eat you alive. It's dying. So that if I'm a Christian, I may realistically say my sin nature does not have the power to make me keep sinning. The devil doesn't have the power to make me keep sinning. I, in my sinful nature, don't have the power to make me keep sinning. It's another truth that you must preach to yourself when you're tempted. And it's another reminder that you overcome sin, you overcome the power of sin in the same way that you were forgiven of sin in the first place. By putting your faith in a specific truth about Jesus. Namely, that He died so that my sin nature would die with Him. Thirdly, I don't have to go on sinning because I have been made alive in Christ. Verse 12 continues the sentence that began back in verse 9. Having been buried with Him, so we're circumcised, our sin is cut off, having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with Him through faith in the working of God who raised Him from the dead. Now being buried with Jesus in baptism is another metaphor for our death, the death of our sin natures. The old man was crucified with Christ and he's buried. Baptism, the first half of it, is a symbol of that. But being raised with Him through faith, as he says in the middle part of the verse, is also a metaphor. That's a metaphor of the new nature that God gives to those who believe coming to life in us. Our faith in the working of God causes a new nature to come to life in us and to breathe life and to begin to be able to run and obey. It's a metaphor that Paul calls elsewhere Christ in you. Been made alive in Christ is one way to say it. Christ is in us. He is living through us is another way to say it. And knowing that Christ is living in us explains how the sin nature, though it dies hard and though it lingers dangerously like a wounded animal that can't really fight anymore but still wants to reach out and swipe you if he can before he dies, though the sin nature lingers like that, it does not have the power to master you unless you give up. If you give up, if you toy with the sin nature, just like if you toy with a dying lion, he could strike a death blow to you. But you don't have to do that because it's not as though Jesus struck the death blow to our sin nature and then left us to fend to ourselves. That's not what he's done. Jesus struck the death blow to our sin nature and then he came to live inside of us so that we would have the power to fend off those last swipes of the claws of our sin nature. 
The sin nature is dying, and on top of that, we've been given the power to go ahead and finish killing it. So there's a third truth that you have to preach to yourself when you're tempted by sin. You say to yourself, I am alive to God. I've been raised with Christ. Christ now lives in me. The old man is gone. The new man has come to life. And when that dying animal, the sinful flesh, lashes out at me, I have the power to fight back. I do not have to sin because Jesus lives in me. So let me now just summarize and then we'll be through. The summary statement would be this. I've said it over and over again for two weeks now. We live the Christian life in the same way that we became Christians, by faith and specific truths about Jesus. Specifically tonight, we overcome the power of sin in the same way that we overcame the penalty of sin, by believing specific Bible truths about Jesus that when believed will give us new taste buds and desires and passions that will change the way that we live. So when you're tempted, you preach to yourselves these three truths. Number one, Jesus.